Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome to Podside Picnic. This is Pete. As always, I'm here with uh, Connor, and we're going to talk today, well, about a lot of things, but primarily about uh, Paolo Bas... I'm going to try that again. Paolo Basagalupi's The Water Knife. Uh, it is... Uh, 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 Basagalupi is an author who has been... Um, sort of rising up and becoming a more and more significant part of science fiction over the last 10 years. And this might be his most significant work. So I'm excited to talk to you about that. But we're not going there yet. Uh, Connor and I have been having an, an extended back and forth. And a big piece of that has been in front of you. Uh, an extended back and forth about what criticism is and how it should be used and what's within bounds and what's out of bounds. So um, on the basis of those discussions and Connor's own thinking, um, he's sort of set together, uh, I guess we could call it a statement of intent or maybe a primer. Uh, Connor, what would you characterize what you're about to go through? I'm just going to give some broad principles of how I practice criticism and Pete has... These are not. Uh, these are my thoughts. They're not Pete's, and I'm not going to take any positions on what specific aspects Pete does or doesn't agree with because I sprung this on him a few minutes ago. Um, you know, I don't think we we're wildly in disagreement, but this is just my. It's my attempt to make an entry into this discourse that we're having about what criticism is, and actually having with actually having written it out and thought about it a little bit rather than just rambling on air and being confusing. So. Um, you know, that's that's kind of where we're at, and I will launch into that if that's okay with you, Pete. It is okay with me. Yeah. Okay, I have to position my laptop so I can actually read this while <laughs> ducking into my little lair where I have to talk into this foam. All right. So I'll just read this, this short document. All right. If criticism is the systematic study of art, then reducing it to a single definition is probably no easier than conclusively saying what art is. My goal here is to posit some broad guidelines to keep in mind when practicing criticism out in the wild, especially online. I'm appropriating and synthesizing diverse traditions of thought spanning centuries, so the final product can't help but be a bastard. All that said, here are some rough principles I use to help myself practice criticism. They function more as aphorisms than as unassailable theses, which is itself a window into how I practice critique. So number one for me would be Criticism, this is kind of, I'm going to give you kind of an Indiana Jones vibe here. You know, in, that, in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think it is, he says to his class, archaeology deals in fact, not in truth. If you want truth, theology is right down the hall. Uh, <laughs> so I would say criticism deals in analysis and evidence, not in truth. And what do I mean by that? There's no single stable truth about a text or a context that you will locate and be able to enshrine for all time. Things change around a text, even in the cases where the text itself, in some sense, remains unchanging, which is also not a given. 
Traditions and institutions rise and fall, methods and tools change. Any argument you want to advance about the narrative arts should be an analysis of evidence in the sense that it uses what can be known to help us reach an understanding that isn't necessarily obvious on the surface. I'm being intentionally vague because that's the point. Critical discourse does involve rigor and it can lead to insight, but it's not a process of uncovering some final truth. And I would say principle number two. Criticism, much like art, will never be the realm of objectivity. So we live in a moment in which YouTubers and other ne'er-do-wells are always searching for a way to use facts and logic to prove the existence of tropes or whatever else. This is definitely plot armor. That's a Mary Sue, etc. We've all heard it. Tropes do exist, but this discourse is largely a dead end. You can't unravel the complexities of even a very bad TV show, say hypothetically a, a bad spirally out of control TV show about dragons in a fantasy realm, just as a you know hypothetical example. You can't unravel the complexities of even a bad TV show just by, wow. having, just by having an encyclopedia of storytelling devices near at hand and applying them as if they were perfectly axiomatic. And here's, I'll actually diverge from my document because this just occurred to me. One of the big problems, which I'll get to at the end of this, this speech, is... We we have a lot of like critical discourse is dominated by the academy, and it's about criticism and scholarship as practices within the academy, as forms of knowledge, and also part of an industry. And I understand why the TV trip stuff has become so popular. It's because if you're really interested in storytelling and becoming a better storyteller, there aren't as many tools out there. And I think you could also argue that like creative writing programs with MFAs have dropped the ball on this. But the point is that people are desperate for tools that help them understand how to tell stories better and how to understand what storytellers are doing that are not academic. So I get it. But back to my document. Um, you can't – just having an encyclopedia of storytelling devices will not help you unravel all the complexity that you're interested in. And you can't apply them as if they're perfectly axiomatic, which is what I see out there a lot. There's, there's a, people are trying to reduce this to objective uh, evidence. And again, much like in the case of art itself, anyone promising the objective keys to criticism is a huckster. Just like anyone t telling you they have a perfect set of methods that will allow you to tell a brilliant story in your novel you want to write is a huckster. Much of the history of critical discourse involves someone asserting they found a final method and someone else saying, not so fast. Which is a nice segue to principle number three, Criticism is not a competition to see who can be more correct. This is a tricky one since critics comprise a profession within various industries, academia, media, etc. And professional competition, say among podcasters, is thus always part of the landscape. And it's certainly possible for one interpretation to be better than another in some sense. But the basic point is that the reason we practice criticism is not generally to arrive at a final interpretation that will silence all others. You've probably noticed at this point I'm repeating versions of this basic point a lot because it's important and many, many people get it wrong, especially on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> number four, finally leaving this territory, be suspicious of your own moralism. You could never leave your moral judgments behind when practicing criticism, and you shouldn't try. But if you find yourself assessing art purely on a moral basis or treating it like an expression of its creator's morality, then you risk depriving yourself of the many other things you could consider. This is not to say nothing and no one should ever be canceled, just that appointing ourselves as judge, jury, and executioner of the arts might lead us into interpretive dead ends that will be hard to escape. And I would also add, I'll get to this later, but it's going to reduce your enjoyment. So keep that in mind, too. Number five for me, I'm finally going to get controversial. The previous ones are kind of aphorisms that restate a broad point. 
um, about objectivity and the nature of truth and criticism. But I'm finally going to get a little bit more away from things that everyone, that probably a lot of critics would agree with and be a little bit more pointed. Number five for me would be to say intent and effect matter, but they're not the only thing that does. So I tend to agree with Walter Ben Michaels uh, that completely abolishing the concept of authorial intent, right, to consign the author to their own death, as it were, uh, as we've done under modernism and postmodernism in some cases. That doesn't make sense because there has to be intention, as he argues, behind any act of making meaning. Uh, the example he famously uses is if you if the tides happen to carve into the beach a Wordsworth poem, it would just be an accident. It wouldn't be the Wordsworth poem. The lack of intention behind doing it would give it completely different meaning or lack thereof than the act of writing the poem, which I think is actually quite persuasive. Okay. Honestly, I would be infinitely more fascinated in the Woodsworth poem that was randomly generated by the beach by the, than the one actually written by a person. Well, yeah, because I, I mean, I take your <laughs> meeting, but that's more fascinating to me. That's an appropriate answer for a science fiction podcast. <laughs> that's the Jeff <laughs> Vandermeer answer. So I, I, I applaud that. Um, and I would say, similar to that, despite generations of disavowal, the way people feel when they encounter art can tell us something important. I would say, again, just don't try to locate either and enshrine it as somehow final, right? And number six, uh, this is me really taking a shot at the academy here. Sorry if you're an academic. Number six, anyone who doesn't want to talk about enjoyment is selling something. So the academy is an industry, as I said before, and this contextualizes everything that happens within academic institutions. I'm sorry, academics, but it's true. Art also takes place within various industries, to be sure, and that fact is equally important. And by the way, it's noted by critics. They say it about artists, so we're going to say it about them. <laughs> Art certainly doesn't exist solely for enjoyment, enrichment, or other easily co-opted, suspicion-laden words. But that is a huge part of why we create it and consume it. If that aspect of things, what you like and don't like and why, doesn't matter, then why talk about the arts at all? Why practice criticism? The fact that academic critics generally, and I, people will raise counterexamples here, but generally in recent generations avoid this particular discourse doesn't invalidate their work at all. But for me, at least, it's a major clue that helps me act as a, criti a critic of them and situate them in their own particular context. Uh, you know, the Latin, the Latin saying, de gustibus, uh, I'm going to get it wrong. It's like de gustibus non est disputandum, meaning of taste, there can be no dispute, meaning don't argue about taste. That is a good truism to go by. However, if I can't talk about what I enjoy or what I don't enjoy, then personally, I don't want to talk about art. And I think a lot of people would honestly agree with that statement. Um, so I'm sure that I've raised far more questions than I've answered. I've just listed a series of aphorisms that I haven't even argued particularly rigor rigorously, thus undermining my own initial point. <laughs> um, and again here, what I'm doing is stealing from centuries of diverging traditions uh, to make us... It's, it's complicated, but I hope that that gives you some light, at least, on where I'm coming from as a critic. What were you going to say, Pete? Sorry. Well, it's just, it's, it's um, amusing sounds condescending, and I'm definitely not coming at it from that angle, but it is amusing to me that the more controversial you get, the more I agree with you. Hmm. Well, I think what's interesting in the context of this podcast is neither of us is, like, outright hostile to the academy or to academic criticism, but we're, we're, we're resolutely not academic critics. Right. Um, and we're also uh, – go ahead. Sorry. Was, oh, no, no. It's fine. Well, and I think we both recognize that when you are examining a work, 
you, coming at it from multiple paradigms is the most useful way to go. And what makes a paradigm valuable isn't whether it is good or bad, but whether you can do something with it. Exactly. And, the, you know, these tools are all jumping yeah, off so points. The, yeah. No, no, go ahead, man. I, I, honestly, I think we could turn into a, a mild argument about this. But overall, I think this is an extremely valid thing for you to do. Like, we should put this out here so that when we're having a discussion with our audience, they know where we're coming from. Yeah, and I hope that those of you who have heard this, again, I know that I, I'm sure I got a lot of things in your mind wrong, especially for an academic critic. Um and I've only raised more questions, but at least now you have some sense of where I'm coming from and why uh, I talk the way that I do about art. Um, and we could go on and on about this for a full episode, and, and sometime maybe we might. However, we're here to discuss The Water Knife, which is a really interesting novel that, speaking of jumping off points, it allows you to discuss a lot of different things. Um, so I'm going to ask Pete here. Yes. Uh, Pete, you – so I, I, I first actually, before I ask you a question, I just want to state for everybody what Water Knife is about. Briefly, it's set in a near future version of the southwestern United States where there's been predictably uh, a very big water crisis. So the U.S. still exists. The world like, is – wait, slow down. <laughs> yeah, right. The U.S. still exists. Uh, the world is, so, is, is, is somewhat re- – is, is recognizable broadly. It's a more recognizable world than, say, Parable of the Sower. But things have deteriorated fast in the Southwest, and one of the major things that's happened is that states have reinstituted their own borders. So there's huge antagonism between Arizona, Nevada, and Texas are the two main states that we talk about. Oh, and California and Colorado. They've all they've all recreated their own borders, basically become nation states, uh, especially for the purposes of water. Like the Texans are very marginalized, which I think is interesting and unrealistic. The Nevadans are like near the top. The Californians are huge and dominant, predictably, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And in this world, we're having a noir where you have a character who's an enforcer for the sort of the queen of the Nevada Water Authority and you have a journalist, et cetera. It it, it just spirals into this noir thing about locating senior water rights, uh, which are so important because, again, this is a world where this is all still done legalistically. Like there's a lot of paramilitary activity, a lot of gang activity. But the water rights stuff is still adjudicated in court and there still is authority. And like we're told that back east, the Senate, Senate senators are still talking with like feigned concern about these people. But, you know, nobody actually cares. That was anyway, that's what Water Knife is about. And I've been talking way, way too much. So, Pete, what do you say about this book? Uh, I, I actually don't know what you mean by this. I need you to explain it in great length. Uh, OK. What do you mean when you say this book avoids a lot of the common traps in science fiction? Okay, so um, if you look, uh, if you if you were trying to look at what kind of a book this was, one of the things you could do is say, well, hey, there's climate change going on, or there's drought going on. This is a climate change science fiction novel, and um, it leads you to a weird spot. Because historically, one of the things that science fiction writers are more vulnerable to than any other type of writer, and feel free to correct me on this, Connor, it just it's something I've seen in my writing, is that they will embrace whatever is current in terms of popular 
like pop scientific method or theory. And so if you look at the Victorian authors uh, of science fiction, so if you look at like Jack London or even better yet, you look you look at H.G. Uh, Wells, what you have is you have somebody who is like, I am a socialist because it is scientific and I am also a eugenicist because it is scientific. No greater depth, no further examination of what's going on. Because, for example, I love H.G. Wells. And I think if he'd have sat down and started piecing together his own philosophy and spent a little more time looking at what he was doing, he would become a little more uh, uncomfortable with with the uh, contradictions there. Uh, Impossible to say because he's seriously dead. But, I I mean, I have to hope that would happen. Uh, when you are dealing with a writer like uh, Paolo, Paolo has made decisions about his writing that he is going to write in a very specific area of science fiction. He writes in the near now, and he talk, he writes about extrapolations of trends that are happening right now in a place where everybody can see that line happening. Like... It, Anybody who lives in the Southwest right now who is not aware that we are creeping up on a serious water crisis has to be, uh, well, they can't have ever looked at a newspaper. They can't have ever turned on the TV. It's just what's happening. So Paolo has taken uh, a current trend. And that current trend, you could call it global warming, you could call it southwestern drought. I'm a little more interested in calling it southwestern drought because I think it it leads us to a more interesting discussion. And he does not um, use the opportunity to sprinkle uh, a handful of of pop culture scientific uh, solutions on us. He does not use the opportunity to moralize as much as I would have expected. He simply explores the issue. That's what I'm talking about. There's a serious series of traps in science fiction, either by coming to a table with a bunch of scientific pap uh, front loaded or by coming in and turning this into Aesop's Tales. And I don't really think he did either. This probably isn't my favorite book, but I think it's a solidly done book that avoids a lot of the things that I was going to, that I was expecting would happen. Did that make sense? Yeah, it made a lot of sense. It's a really interesting analysis. It gives me a lot to think about and and it opens up a new strain that I'm sure will recur in this podcast as we keep going forward, which is just about how do science fiction writers actually use science and how do they get it wrong or misuse it? Um, something that we have not touched on a ton because, you know, I'm so political and neither of us is a, is a scientist per se, but sure. like that's something that we should probably work on examining more. So thank you for opening that topic. I, I want to ask you now, um, speaking of the history of science fiction, how would you classify this book? Like what are its – what lineages is it in? Uh, what are its forebears? What do you suspect is influencing it? OK. So um, there's a couple of directions we could go with this. Um, and, you know, the problem is like it's multiple paradigms once again. Like could, could you make a case that this is sort of a proto-cyberpunk novel? I think you probably could. Because you're dealing with a situation where the nation states are weak, the corporations are strong, um, people are not uh, – it's all about looking after yourself. 
Like, in fact, like the you could say that this this move this book is basically uh, China's town with a dash of the prisoner's dilemma. Like most of the problems wouldn't be happening if people would make choices based upon the idea that you could re- rely on the other parties to 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 act responsibly. And that's not what's happening. Everybody in this book that survives has to make the assumption that everyone else is trying to screw them over. And that's the only way to make things work, which is a very cyberpunk way to look at the universe. Um, However, that's definitely not all that's going on here. Uh, Certainly since the 70s, ecological science fiction has been a serious and important substrate of science fiction. You've got books like well, I mean, if I don't say it, like people are going to shriek at me. Dune, obviously it's an ecological novel. It's an ecological series talking a lot about water shortages and the choices people make. Not all that's going on there, but definitely a big part of it. And I would bet a large quantity of money that Paolo has read Dune. Um, I would also bet that he's read uh, Ty Bass's The God Whale. Uh, talking about species diversity shortage and the eventual human dieout. Uh, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the things that lead to this book happen in the 70s. Uh, what was that book? I remember my father got it, and it was just sort of this life-changing, um, I think it's called The Silent Spring. Do you know the one I'm talking about, Connor? Oh, yeah. Rachel Carson, Silent Spring, kind of the founding book of the what we now recognize as the modern environmental movement. Right, yes. exactly. And that book resonated throughout science fiction. Like after that book came out more and more, you started seeing science fiction where, okay, you go to this place and you set up an a, a industrial complex. What happens to the grasslands? What happens to the forest? And that type of science fiction, it often isn't placed in its own genre, but you can trace that vein from that si- from the silent spring to today. And it's very clear to me that Paolo is in that vein of science fiction. Like the, the ecology, I mean, saying the ecology is important to him makes me sound like a moron because it's so obvious that it is. Like every book he's ever written has centered around this, even the shipbreakers. Uh, oh, side note, do you know about all of his young adult novels? I do not. Well, he's, he's primarily a young adult novelist. Most of the books he has written have been like a shipbreaker and the drowned cities and something about a factory. I'm cheating now, The Doubt Factory. He's written a series of books that are clearly targeted at a younger uh, audience. And they aren't all about drought. Some of them are about uh, cities getting drowned by, by salt water. Like, he moves to a lot of different places here. But he's very interested in having a conversation about what nature is going to look like over the next 50 to 100 years. And um, he's, he has that, com- that conversation with the young as well. That's all very interesting. Um, I I was thinking about what you were saying about wanting to make this a book about drought in a specific region with a particular history rather than about climate change as a whole, which I think is a really important move because so much of my somewhat wariness of this book, I I have a really wary relationship with climate narratives in all kinds of art just because I, I get the sense we're in the very early moments of figuring out how to deal with this as an issue predictably. Um, and I think that so much art that attempts to sort of take on, 
you know, the totality of ecology and climate as an issue and make it real in a narrative with human protagonists in most cases. It's it's very hard, and I think a lot of it is done, frankly, very poorly. And I wouldn't accuse him of this. I wouldn't accuse Bostoglupi of this. Um, partly because he does, like, if you... There's, there's so many different ways to approach what he's done here. You could say, okay, this is a ridiculous... If you're looking for a very literal speculative prediction about what will happen in the in the near future, it's like, oh, this is ridiculous. Like The, the, the point of conflict is not going to be that like Texas gets frozen out and all Texans become refugees while Nevada and Las Vegas thrive. That's ridiculous for a lot of reasons. But uh, if you just say, okay, forget that for a second and just consider that this is a parable about the nature of borders and how the borders in this region have indeed shifted over time historically uh, from Spanish colonialism to the various border wars of the Republic of Texas to the United States. Uh, they have shifted. They are obviously extremely contentious now and always have been in a sense. And that he's just saying, well, imagine if the borders formed a little bit differently in this part of the world uh, and there would still be lip service to this border crisis from, you know, concerned politicians in the East or whatever, but no one would really be doing anything meaningful. And, and meanwhile, ordinary people, ordinary people would be getting fucked. If you look at it that way, it's like, yeah, okay. I can't argue with that. Right. Well, I, I think, I think you're nailing it, Connor. It's, it's, it's really easy to look at these books as a recipe book for what's going to happen in the future. And that's always silly. Like I, I remember people used to do that to Neuromancer. You know, it's like, where right. where are my embedded cybernetics? God damn it. And it's like, well, no, that's not what's happening here. Uh, Paulo is not trying to tell you what's going to happen in the next 15 years and what the teams are going to be. He's talking about the inevitable drought and the choices we're going to make. And on that level, I find this book very interesting because, I mean, I, I absolutely aligned with him. I mean, it's like Chinatown meets the prisoner's dilemma, and, and it really connected with me on that level. If we talk about it as a parable of climate change, I'm kind of losing interest, to be honest, because like the, on that level, like it's telling us that things are bad and getting worse, and on an individual level, there's not a lot we're going to be able to do, and I think we all knew that coming in. That's not necessarily a book I want to read. Yeah, and I, I, I'm not sure that this is this is quite the episode for us, at least for me. I mean, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but for me at least, <laughs> I'm not in a mood to launch into my thoughts on climate change and how it relates to the narrative arts just yet. I think we'll get there well, when we do people like Vandermeer. Um, we'll get there, but... We are going to have to, but I, I don't have the stomach for it today either. I think I think talking about what's happening in this book is enough. Um, yeah, and actually one word that I think I used earlier, but you did not... Uh, using your description was noir, which this very, very much is. In fact, I was a lot just of... going to go there. Yeah. Oh, go. okay. What are you going to say? Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say that um, th this this book clearly had noir elements, and I know that this reminded you that you may not like noir. Could you could you expound upon that? Um, I think it's not even necessarily a fully formed thesis. It's just that we've dealt with a lot of noir. Uh, sci-fi while doing this podcast, like recently watched Dark City, which is very, very much a noir. Um, so you mentioned Neuromancer already. And what, what I was just thinking about as you were talking was you said this, this could be a cyberpunk novel in a sense. And of course, because Neuromancer is considered the, um, the ur cyberpunk text, and it is also in a sense a noir, it's like cyberpunk and noir have been joined at the hip since the very beginning. 
Uh, and, and there are good reasons for that. One of those reasons is that noir, even pre, despite not having access to the genre of cyberpunk in its beginnings, I guess noir as we know it probably began 20s, 30s, I'm, you know, with detective novels of a certain kind. Um, it, it is one thing that is always shared with cyberpunk is this fascination with individual operators working who are at, who are sort of atomized and isolated and alienated, but are having to work for, toward their own advantage in an incredibly hostile and different world. And they have to just accept this. And there's usually a very, uh, there's a grim humor to it. Their sensibility is very wry and cynical. And that's recognizable across what we call cyberpunk and, and it's, and across what we call noir. Uh, and we got into a point where the two tend to often influence one another. But of course, you know, I think cyberpunk maybe took some of that from noir. I'm not sure what Gibson's like reading had been, but I'm sure he'd read a fair amount of, of uh, noir detective novels. He was a well-read guy before he wrote Neuromancer. But anyway, um, I, I thought all that, that is all fine. I don't think it's right for me because the thing that I'm learning about myself more and more as a writer and as a reader is I'm actually really interested in the ways I'm not as much interested in having the cynicism and, and callousness of the world revealed to me over and over again. I, I'm actually more interested in people for whom the system is working and it's not actually host, as hostile. And what is going on there? I'm also, I'm a Melvillian in the sense that not because I write like Melville or think that I could, but because Melville is very interested in possibility and he's interested in frontiers in the same way that I am, in a very American way. He's interested in all the things that might happen, and he's very interested in what happens when you get what you want, right? You do find the white whale. Uh, I'm interested in, in, yeah, so therefore I'm interested in characters for whom things work, more or less, maybe even work too well, and in what it means for them to get what they want. And that's a little bit different than the hyper-alienated uh noir hero who's being attacked usually on multiple fronts for whom the world is just an aggressively hostile place, which by the way, Dark City literalizes very clearly in that the world is purely hostile. It's an artificial construct uh, created for nefarious purposes that is that is just attacking you on every level. Does this spiel make sense, Pete? Yeah, yeah. And it's sort of, I could see where that would make it strange to engage with the book because like, you know, the girl from Texas, like her arc is that of failure. Like, she has lost so much that she, like, it's in her head. She can't win anymore. And that's why she makes the decision she went. She she opted for safety all the way down the line, and that damns everybody. Right. Um, spoiler. And you have, oh, yeah, spoiler. But, like, uh, <laughs> you know, Angel Velas, is it uh, Angel, the water knife? Um, you know, he's, he's certainly the classic noir detective, in a sense. Um you have the journalist who's trying to be a do-gooder and do the right thing and spoiler, but she ultimately gets foiled by the other characters who are just trying to make their score. They're trying to survive and thrive as best they can without without the delusion that they can that they can change the world. And I'm gonna do my usual thing here, uh, and just read a little bit from the opening of this book to give people some sense of what we're talking about stylistically. Awesome. So this is chapter one of Water Knife. There were stories in sweat. The sweat of woman bent double in an onion field, working 14 hours under the hot sun, was different from the sweat of a man as he approached a checkpoint in Mexico, praying to La Santa Muerte that the federales weren't on the payroll of the enemies he was fleeing. 
The sweat of a 10-year-old boy staring into the barrel of a Sig Sauer was different from the sweat of a woman struggling across the desert and praying to the virgin that a water catch was going to turn out to be exactly where her coyote's map told her it would be. Sweat was a body's history, compressed into jewels, beaded on the brow, staining shirts with salt. It told you everything about how a person had ended up in the right place at the wrong time and whether they would survive another day. To Angel Velasquez, perched high above Cypress One Central Boar and watching Charles Braxton as he lumbered up the Cascade Trail, the sweat on a lawyer's brow said that some people weren't near as important as they liked to think. Okay, so if you're getting a lot of a sense of what uh, Basaglupi does overall, and just in that passage. He's very interested in viscera and making you feel the sweat and the dirt and the dust and the grime and the heat. That comes back over and over again. Um, he's also, that, that first paragraph is enumerating a series of hostilities that affect different people in different ways, but the overarching impulse is of, you know, the overarching impression, rather, is of predation, exploitation, um, indifference. And all of that is laid out very care, uh, capably throughout the story. I think that I, I mean, there's a reason that I like Le Guin. You know, Le Guin, for instance, like, uh, what is Shevek or who is, you know, Ginli Ai in The Left Hand of Darkness? These are men with a, with a certain level of achievement and attainment and talent who voluntarily undertake these vast adventures that take them away from situations where, frankly, they were doing well or better than well for a lot of reasons. And they strike out into the unknown because they want something bigger. And they have a kind of ambition that they can barely even articulate, but that they have, it can only be found out there in whatever their frontier is, whatever their vast unknown is. Uh, and that, yeah, it's about people for whom the system works quite well, who want more, who push it who want to break out and subvert, even though they don't really have an overriding need to do so. So that's why I find Le Guin more interesting, personally, um, than a lot of what is out there in this more noir uh, or cyberpunk vein. This is a personal preference, and it probably says a lot about my background, but that's that's where I'm at. Well, you, what you said just, I, I missed a piece of what I was going to talk about when I was talking about uh, science fiction authors uh, having having weaknesses when talking about stories like this because of Le Guin. Le Guin always looked for social solutions for social problems. And so many science fiction authors look for technological solutions for social problems. And if you wanted to make this a bad book, you would design a filtration system for water, or you would you would figure out a way to make a good uh, uh, like evaporator to get get water out of the air, something like that. Like there's a lot of ways that we want to fix our world using technology that aren't addressing the real problems here. And what the the world being created here, it's it's not because there's not enough water. It's because everybody's moving to the desert and we're making ridiculous decisions about what to do with the water that is there. And I think he does a really good job of capturing that. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I would also add that um, generally genre fiction, this is a big problem that we face. You said Le Guin posits social solution to social problems and science fiction writers often posit technological solution to social problems, which I think is a great point. I would add the really important thing about genre storytelling, really mass cultural storytelling generally, is the pernicious trap is individual 
solutions to social problems that a, an individual will come along and save the world, right? And this, oh you know, this yeah, is, this is not original to mass culture of our time. This is something that that goes back in myths a very long time into the past. But I think we should always be suspicious of it. And I will give Bosigalupi a lot of credit for not going anywhere near that. I mean, he has the he has one character who thinks they're going to be that person and she is foiled by people who are close to her and and in, at least in one case care about her because they have just a more realistic vision of their reality and that's a great narrative touch um and kudos to him for not falling into that trap either. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I I could characterize what happened a completely different way, but you're you're absolutely right. That's how it went down. I also I also think of it as sort of an argument that like if 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 mutual aid were a thing, if people were actually trying to help each other, none of this would be happening. Right. I mean it, it, he weaves a complex web of why that's not the case. Um, yeah. That again, it's easy. It would be easy to, to try to unravel that web and say, here's why he's being too cynical or in a specific historical context, unrealistic. You could always do that. But again, I think it's best to read this as a book that's about, look, we know this is a part of the world where borders are shifting and contentious and fraught historically. And that is very much in your face when you're in that part of the world. And we have to just accept that this is a this is one form that it could take, and it happens to be taking place in what is the United States. But it's like again, it's th- that region has its own very specific history that is not just the history of the United States. Um, and and we have to think in those terms and, and make it and make it about borders generally and borders in this region historically. And I think read that way, it's much more fu- it's much more interesting and fun than to read it and say, well. I- I, you know, my, my objective, of course, is like, why would Texas, of all states, be the most disempowered state in this equation? I mean, they have all the red state political power behind them. I feel like they would find ways to screw over New Mexico and Arizona and, and, and Nevada. But <laughs> there's there's a history of that, though. Like a lot of science fiction in the 80s had te- everyone in Texas becoming homeless and moving north. Um, really? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, uh, hardwired is all about that. Where like the Texans were were uh, drinking the milkshake of New Mexico by by putting the pipelines under and taking water. But eventually, when that ran out, they don't have aquifers. You know what I mean? There's not enough sustainable water down there. So if you know, I'm not I'm not saying you're wrong. It is kind of nuts because they do have political power. And more to the point, they have oil. But it's also true that uh, from a from a who can dip the straw, they're they're the last people there. Well, and I think what's interesting in all of these stories that posit breakdowns within the United States while the United States still exists, the the thing that we end up orbiting, and this is important to discussions of climate change out in the real world, not just how it works in art, but it's like the thing that we orbit is. This, of course, is by far the most powerful nation state on Earth. It's the imperial core of a relatively unchallenged uh, empire with global reach, this country as a whole, I mean. And so you have to make certain conceptual leaps to say that things are going to fall apart in the United States in certain ways, and they're also they're somehow not going to fall apart in, like, in Canada or Germany or Japan or other developed countries you want to posit are going to be eating our lunch, like in Parable of the Sower. And... I think that is all true in historical sense, but I think then the obvious repost would be like, well, Puerto Ricans are American citizens and we've let them get screwed over. Like if, if you're poor enough and marginal enough in the U.S., um, you know, if the if the if we hurricane un-Americanize you, yeah, exactly, we other you. We uh, so of course Puerto Rico as a whole has undergone a lot of that, but also 
you know, it, disasters, when disasters hit a given part of the United States' geography, um, there's always a federal response and there's a recovery effort. And as we all know from every single time this happens, the poorest and most marginal people are the ones who continue to suffer the most. And we all just sort of absorb, absorb and accept that that's part of their plight. And so, yeah, I mean, in those microcosms, this is, it's, it is all very true. I, I always think, I, I do think that there is a particular trap there, which I'm not accusing Bosaglupi of. I think that it's just an ongoing conceptual problem that Americans have to work through in our culture and our narrative arts because it, it, it pertains so much to, the, to the world outside of those arts is what does it mean? What are the risks and what does it mean to borrow the trouble of others, essentially of to say, to try to drive home the point to, to, for instance, professional class white people that it will happen to you too. Because I think at a very deep level, whatever does happen in the domestic United States in my lifetime, it's very unlikely to affect whatever bad, terrible things happen. Uh, even the worst scenarios you could imagine, short of an asteroid striking, uh, I, I I have a very difficult time believing that the white professional class people, for instance, in Phoenix, let's say, would be caught in this in the exact same way as as the poorer browner people in Phoenix would be caught in it. That's just that's that's ridiculous on so many levels. I think, and again, he's not Bosclubi's not really doing that per se. I guess, but it's just like there's often an effort to say to take the person who's considered the normal. I'm, I'm using this in a, in a load, intentionally loaded sense. The normal subject of these stories, which is, you know, we, the, the norm for the normal, the normal reader of a book, according to the publishing industry, is like an educated, you know, white person, basically. Uh, and to say, how can we drive home the point that it will happen to you too? That you will be the same as the people you currently other and occupy a higher part, a higher point in the hierarchy. Like you'll be the same as those people. And it's like, probably under whatever happens. You won't be, and there's a real threat in in equating yourself to those people. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, no. It's 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 just one of the sad realities. Anytime, well, it's talked about in this book. The term they use is disaster porn. I mean, precisely. The, yes. Yes. Like, not only are these things happening to to uh, people who are immediately getting othered, they're exciting to watch. And like, okay, like. George Carlin is not one of our patron saints of this show, but the, he, when he talked about disaster porn, he called out something very true about what makes it interesting. The more people affected, the more interesting it is to you, and the closer it is to your house, the more interesting it is. You can draw a graph. Because, like, I mean, there's, there's typhoons happening all the time in the Philippines, and they don't make the news here. Exactly, but yeah. Somebody's car catches fire three blocks away. That's going to be on your TV. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great point. And actually, this is where I you re, thank you for reminding me. I want to give Bascalupi uh, a lot of credit here, and say that the metafictional quality of this, where he talks about um, the practice of being a journalist documenting this, because the the do-gooder character is a journalist who's intentionally hanging out in Phoenix, even though we know she could move to Vancouver with her sister. Which, by the way, if anybody offers you the chance to move to Vancouver and you don't do it, you're a moron. Vancouver fucking rules. But uh, this is <laughs> another really thing that we both absolutely agree on. By the way, I'm a huge <laughs> Vancouver fan. I really wish Vancouver were on this side of the border so I could go there immediately because I would. But oh, we, um, we'd form a podcast collective there immediately. We totally would. So if any, if there are Canadians that are listening to this and want to help us make that happen, uh, please, honestly, DM me, get in touch. But um, okay, so while we're talking about that, like 
yeah, so she's a do-gooder. Um, she's not depicted as naive. She's she's weathered and hardened in certain ways. But again, he is commenting and playing on with uh, playing with the fact that you know he's participated in journalism. He even references some publications he's worked with, like High Country News, um, and he's sort of working through. Uh, what it means to be a writer who is trying to document and get people to care about this and do all the good things that writers and journalists do, but is also working through the fact that people are interested in what's happening here because it's it titillates them in certain ways um, and because it's sensational and it's transgressive, all of those reasons that we're drawn to horrible things happening to other people. And he does a great job processing that, so I'm not going to accuse him of like, I think he does. I think that many, even though this book is not for many reasons, my favorite book, it does a lot of things really admirably. Um, and it's a good one to learn from if you're going to write about these topics. I think we both agree on that. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah. Yeah. Like I, I'm, I'm any, like if we're talking about the quality of the book, like every component I'm very happy with what, what, what's missing is my enjoyment like it, it's it's a depressing book about a bunch of people running out of water, and I think it's a book worth reading, and it's great. But like it's, uh, I'm probably not going to reread it. And there's a lot of books about the same topic where I am going to read it because they excite me and they don't depress me. And that's on me. That's not on him. Pete, do you think this was a little bit uh, fraught for you because Vegas are the bad guys? <laughs> Well, it was sort of reassuring because it meant my property values wouldn't crater. That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, true. I, they kept mentioning the so-called Cypress development in Vegas, which I guess is one of these like arcologies where everything is perfect and lush and green. And I was like, that's probably like Pete's neighborhood will become the arcology. Uh, you'll be in the bubble. Well, and you know, it's it's funny because like uh, one of the if you live in another part of the country, let me talk a little bit about what it's like to live in Vegas. Oh, uh, you know those malls you go to where there's a movie theater and then you've got, you know, the, the restaurants you want to go to and all of that stuff, the bowling alley. Um, generally speaking, depending on where you live in Vegas, what you have instead is a casino that has all that crap. Like you go to a casino and you see the movie or you go to the casino and you go bowling or you go to a restaurant because it's a collective of all those things in one place. And around those places, you will find, especially the ones that aren't on the strips, you will find these arcology style hotels that are like 50 stories in the air. Like they're the craziest things you've ever seen. And like each each. Uh, apartment within there has like 3,000 square feet and its own fountain and they've got their own golf course and all this other stuff and people go and retire to these things. And I, you know, I guess if you gave me the $2 million I'd need to buy into one of those places, I'd probably do something else. But they're really nice. Like I see the attraction. And so making the jump between something like that to one of these mega arcologies, it's not a big jump at all. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point. Like, I, I know people, uh, you know, more affluent older people, let's just say that naming names, <laughs> who are ha, have made or are making the trek to particular parts of Arizona where you have, like, a very specific, often fairly isolated, actually, community um, of essentially, like, big mansions, and they're built around, like, golf courses, you know, uh, which, again, the practice of having all these golf courses in places like Arizona or Nevada is unbelievably insane. Futures, it's infuriating. Future, it's unbelievable. And future generations 
uh, and, and I, I will pause here to actually say, like, in, in some, it's a little more complicated than that. Like, in some places, like, yeah, northern northern Arizona, for instance, has mountains, and the hydrology is a little bit different than like the Phoenix area. So it's like it's not always hydrology is complicated. It's not all just flat desert where you have to pipe in Colorado River water. But regardless of where you're getting the water from, it's like, do we really want to have golf courses in? Why do we have golf courses in the in Arizona as opposed to golf courses in I don't know North Carolina? Uh, yeah. Or pretty much anywhere east of the Mississippi, where it's like, all right, yeah, it, it rains a lot, it's wet, let's have a golf course here. Uh, that's that's just obvious to be like, really, anywhere west of the Mississippi that isn't uh, the Pacific Northwest, it's like, <laughs> like come on, it, say, say, it's like lawns and golf courses generally in those places. It's like, come on, but yeah, I mean, it's not that hard to make the leap from from that to what we're seeing in this book. It's not it's not a big conceptual leap at all. If you have a grass lawn in Las Vegas and you call the the Las Vegas Regional Water Authority, they will come and they will tear out that grass and they will put rocks there and they will hand you a couple of dollars per square foot. <laughs> Seriously? Wow. Oh yeah, yeah, they will literally pay you to get rid of that shit. That's actually that's awesome actually. That's I'm glad they're doing that. Is there cuz I I've been Oh, and it's it's beautiful too, like the just like the rock lawns and all of that. I mean, it's it sounds kind of hokey, but like like if you go for a walk here, it's just like it's it's like a Marscape. I love it. Yeah, I'm a big xeriscaping. What that's called? I'm a big xeriscaping proponent, and my parents finally started doing it to our dinky lawn in Laramie because Laramie's not quite as dry as Vegas, but it's high desert. It's quite dry, and it's like, why does why the f does anybody have? lawns out here. I mean, I, people are starting to say this, yeah. that we need to, we need to socially, we need to start making lawns in most of the countries. Again, well, I would say most of the country. In much of the country where a lot of people live, uh, having a grass lawn, maybe it's not the best thing for the environment. Like, obviously, if you had like native plant species, that might be better. But the point is like, it's sure. not as, it's not a, necessarily a huge burden because it does rain a lot, et cetera, et cetera. But in so much of the country, we just need to start shaming lawns. They just need to become a shameful socially negative thing and I agree with that well and they're like I I remember having a lawn in Minnesota and it sucks it's so much extra work you spend all your time in competition with your neighbors trying to make it look better and like you don't know or care about your neighbors so why are you in competition with them like it's just like that that it's 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 a toxic social thing never mind it's a waste of water yeah it's it's a relic of an era that needs to die and if we can't get over some of that bullshit then we are going to end up like the water knife folks <laughs> so I, I would say yeah read this book uh you'll if you'll like it more than i liked it if you're into noir probably because it is a rip roaring um action driven good time in that way and i think it, it is a very smart book about Insofar as it's possible to be smart about things like ecology and hydrology uh, in, in, in a novel, I think this does a very good job of it. You know, I think I think we had some other things we talked about that we could talk about, but I think this might be a good place to leave it, man. I think we're doing well. Yeah, I think we're, we had a good discussion, and, and I feel like we should leave on that positive note. So uh, everyone, go read this book and tear out your lawn and put a bunch of rocks down. <laughs> No matter where you live. Yeah, I don't care where you live. I don't care if you live in Maine. Do it now. Uh, take care, everybody. 